You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening and welcome to Exodus 4. And we are in Exodus Unveiled, Parshat Bishalach. And this week's Parsha really is a Parsha of trust. It is the Parsha, the message is that the Jewish people need to turn to the Almighty. And we're going to see that their trust is reinforced and then challenged. And the Jewish people will have successes and failures at this message. And really, it's a process we're going to see unfolding, particularly in this Parsha, as the Jewish people are leaving Egypt and the Egyptian army will be destroyed. And then their struggles surviving in the desert afterwards. So it says, the Parsha begins by saying that God did not lead them by a straight route out, which would have been along the coast. Uh, through the northern Sinai and Gaza and directly into Israel. Why? Because he was afraid that they would meet opposition and turn around. In other words, the people weren't ready yet to fight for their freedom, to fight for, uh, for that which they wanted. And he knew they would get discouraged. So they were led around, led around the long way. Now, there are many other outcomes of this. The Egyptian army being destroyed at the, at the Red Sea, um, the Jewish people wandering through the desert, and all of these needed to happen. But still, it gives us this reason. It says that Jewish people went up hamushim, which literally means armed. So despite the fact that they were armed, they still weren't ready, really ready to fight. But it also comes from the word chamesh, which is a fifth. And there's a midrash that said, a fifth of the Jews died in the plague of darkness. Sorry, four-fifths died, and only one-fifth remained. What is the message? So last week we talked about the Jews having to make a commitment to get to take the Passover lamb, to slaughter the Egyptian god, and um, they weren't already all, all prepared to break away from this culture that they'd been a part of. Now, this is a midrash. If you do the numbers... It says Jacob came down with 70 men. There were other women, presumably. There were wives, and because we know they already had children. So if you do the numbers, that there were 210 years, 21 years per generation, they had children young, and each one had six or seven children, you quickly go from 70 through exponential growth to uh, about two or three million in those generations. And um, we know that it says they left, there were 600,000 men that left. So with their families, it would have been two to three million. So uh, the Midrash does imply a larger number that there would have been 20 million in Egypt uh, or uh, 15 million, but um, there is a principle that the Midrash we do not necessarily take literally, the numbers in the Midrash. So we know that there was a multitude of people and there were many who died. Um, but the numbers in the Torah we do take at face value. So it says that as they were going, um, that uh, Moshe went and took the bones of Yosef. He took Joseph's casket Remember, Joseph had asked them to swear to take him up, 
and had also promised that they would be redeemed. So in a sense, taking Joseph's casket was an affirmation of that promise of redemption. That's one role it had. The Midrash says that we're told this here because right after the clouds of glory will be coming and accompanying the Jewish people. And they say that the clouds came on the merit of Joseph to accompany Joseph, uh, just like Joseph accompanied his father to Israel to bury him with great honor. So too, Joseph was accompanied with great honor. Now, as an aside, it says that while all the Jews were running around getting silver and gold, which God told them to ask for, Moshe, what was Moshe doing? He was getting Joseph's bones. He was taking care of the spiritual matters. Now, the clouds of glory will play a very important part in terms of the Jewish people's travels, and we'll talk about them extensively in later parshiot. The clouds represented the divine presence amongst the Jewish people. They also served as air conditioning. It even says they were had a fragrance. You know, when you go into that hotel lobby and there's a there's fragrance in the air. Um, and it smoothed over the roads. So, um, and this week's part will play a vital role militarily as well to shield the Jewish people. So it says the Jewish people returned and camped at Piachirut opposite Baltzafon by the sea, by the Red Sea. And uh, we're not gonna go into detail of what was the Red Sea. There are marshy areas around uh, the top of the sea, which juts out uh, on that side of the Sinai. Uh, now the Suez Canal is built through that area. There are marshy areas, which are semi-salty water. Uh, some people want to say it was a spit of land in the Mediterranean, and the sea coming in could have been the tide. We'll talk about that. That was possible, because it says that the water was like a wall. So, um, But uh, the significance is that God brought them back. What does that mean? It means they did like a triangle. They went one direction and then they kind of doubled back. So that what happened was when Pharaoh decided he didn't want to let the Jewish people go, he just had to go uh, directly from point A to C. The Jewish went, he went A, B, C. He went directly A to C, so he was able to catch up. So in effect, what the Almighty was doing is he was using the Jewish people as a um, bait to draw out the Egyptian army. And we're going to see in order to destroy it. So, Piachirut, um, the voice of freedom, literally is what it means. And this theme of speech and freedom will be, uh, is found several places. A paro could be the pe-ra, the bad mouth. Pesach is the mouth that speaks. And Piachirut, where they ultimately was the last step before their freedom, was the affirmation of their freedom. And we're going to see the power of the voice. The Jewish people are going to complain that brings them down. But we understand that in free societies, freedom of speech is so vital to, um, to an open society. And speech is the way we affirm our inner convictions as well. And we believe that. Jewish history shows that it's not the strength of the sword, but it's the power of the idea, the power of thought and speech of bringing people together around that idea that 
can overcome incredible obstacles and ones that appear much stronger. So, um, so we see that theme explicitly mentioned in the location, hinted at in the location where they camped. Opposite Balsafon, which was the idolatrous spot, they were opposite it, they were opposing the idolatry. And uh, so here we have the showdown. Paro believes that they are lost in the desert. He said they're lost in the desert. And he says, uh, Moshe, God tells Moshe that uh, when Paro hears that his people are gone, he's going to say, what have we done? Why did we let them out? Not just Paro, his servants, who admitted that they had to let the Jewish people go as the empire was crumbling. Now they have a change of mind, right? When thing crisis is in front of you, you finally get the message, then it's gone. You go back to who you were. And God tells Moshe that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart as well, and that then he's going to bring wonders upon the Jewish people. And uh, as the 600 chariots are coming upon them, sure enough, this is what Pharaoh does. He rallies his army, uh, goes through, intercepts the Jewish people. And as they're coming upon them, they turn to Moshe and they say what is perhaps the funniest line in the Torah. And here's a real slapstick. They say, uh, there were no graves in Egypt. You had to take us out here to kill us. Um, obviously sarcastic, but also the first of the complaints which are going to now start coming, tragically. And he's, they say to Moshe, we told you to leave us alone, that it was better to have uh, than to be in Egypt where, where they were nostalgic for it. We want to go back rather than take us in the desert to die. And Moshe and the Almighty must have very, been very understanding this time because he just says to the people, do not be afraid, sit back and see what God will do to the Egyptians and you will never see them again. And here we come to the Yamsuf, to the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea. And Hashem says to Moshe, remember, picture the scene. You are a motley crew of ex-slaves tasting your first freedom. The powerful Egyptian army is rumbling down upon you. Your backs are to an ocean. And you think this is it. So what do you think you should do? Maybe grab whatever we can, take out a weapon, organize in uh, battalions, uh, figure out how to sabotage the chariots. After all, it's about 100 people against each chariot. Um, so, but they don't do any of that. Sorry, 1,000 people, 600,000 people, 600 chariots. So um, he says, uh, Shem says to Moshe, why are you calling out to me? Tell the Jewish people to just move. And you move where? You will lift your staff and the waters of the sea will part and the Jews will go in the sea and I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will come in after them. And it said that all night the cloud was between the Jewish camp and the, the fire at night and the cloud during the day was blocking the Egyptians. It even blocked their arrows. And finally, the next morning, Moshe raises his staff. The wind blows all night. The water splits, and it says the Jews came into the sea on dry land, and the water was like a wall on both sides. 
And this shows that this could not have been a tide coming in. Tides can sometimes go quicker than galloping horses. This was an overt miracle, the transcendence of the laws of nature. And this event is often quoted. We're supposed to remember it every day, every year. The Ten Commandments introduced God is who brought us out of Egypt because it is the affirmation to the entire Jewish people that God controls the world, the events of history, and the physical world as well. So um, then Hashem says to Moshe, uh, raise your staff and the water will go back upon the Egyptians. And sure enough, that is what happened. And it says, you will not, there will not be even one left. Now the Talmud debates, what is even one? So according to Rabbi Nachemya, even one is that there will be one, adechat, until one. And that where there's a midrash that says, Pharaoh indeed survived because the worst punishment for him would be the humiliation of surviving and to see the Jewish people prevailing and to see his mighty army of chariots wiped out. And here we have the Shirat Hayam, the song on the sea. Then Moshe will sing. Why in the future? Because also in the time to come, Moshe will sing a song. Now, it's introduced and it says that the Jewish people went on dry land into the sea and the water was a wall on their right and left. It repeats the same verse we saw a few lines before. Why? So the Vilna Gaon, the great uh, Rabbi Eliyahu of Vilna, notes that the word wall, choma, the first time was written with uh, out above, with above, and the second time is written without above, an extra letter. So, which actually is, looks like a wall. So the, the extra letter is actually a positive thing. And when it says it with the letter, it said the Jewish people went in the sea on dry land. The second set time it says they went on dry land into the sea. Why the change? So it says there were two different groups. And there's a famous Midrash that the Jews were back to the ocean. They were told to, to go just to travel and the water was still there. So Nachshon ben Aminadav, the head of the tribe of Judah, just went in the water. He started walking. He gave complete trust to the Almighty. And he walked, and the water went up, and he walked, and he walked, and he walked till the water was right below his nose, and then it parted. And really, it's a message that uh, sometimes we do have to jump, just take that leap of faith, and then the actions, the results will come as a result. They'll come afterwards. So they sang a song. Now it tells us in Book of Proverbs, do not rejoice over the downfall of your enemy. It's not something we are gleeful about. Um, and sometimes terribly you see that Jews are killed and our enemies are cheering and giving out candy. When we are victorious, we are grateful, we are happy, but we're not gleeful. We don't gloat over the downfall of our enemies. This was not gloating. This was rejoicing and praise to God. Very different. And in fact, even on Passover, in the last days of Passover, we do not say the full halal, the full uh, prayer of praise, because the Midrash says, my creatures, my 
creations, human beings, the Egyptians, even though they made us suffer terribly, they were drowning and it's not appropriate to sing with full rejoicing. So the song describes the Egyptians being churned around in the water, which does affirm God's judgment of their wickedness. And it continues talking about how God is going to bring the Jewish people to the land and how the neighboring kingdoms will be afraid. They'll be in awe over God. And um, so another purpose for this destruction of the Egyptians is to send a message to the future enemies, to show them that God is all-powerful. And it says that then Miriam took her drum and brought the woman together, and they also sang and danced and rejoiced. So the Jewish people move on. The first place they get is called Mara, bitterness. They came upon water. Remember, now they're going out into the desert. There's no turning back. There's an ocean between them and Egypt. And remember, they didn't prepare provisions. So the waters were bitter. And Moshe took a branch. He puts it in the waters, and it became sweet. And Mara represents the obstacles that are placed before us. And sometimes, even when we're already struggling, we want to give up. And it appears like there's more bitterness coming, but that sometimes is the first step towards the solution, towards the answer. And then God says, if you follow my commandments and go in my ways, that the diseases of Egypt will not come upon you. So what is the answer? The answer is Torah. Torah is represented by the tree of life. So that tree, according to some commentators, the wood that was put in the water is the Torah, which will remove the bitter obstacles. And then sure enough, they came to a sweet spring with 12 springs and 70 date palms, representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 70 nations of the world. But then they're back out in the desert and there's no food. The Jewish people panic again and again. They say, if only we died uh, in Egypt, as uh, even if though we were dying, but we had food, we had bread, we were satisfied. But here we're being taken out to the wilderness to die. And what is going on? So in the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, they dig a tunnel, break out of the prison, and right before they're about to go, the older prisoner, he tells them, you go ahead, I'm not going. Why? He was afraid of freedom. He was afraid of the unknown. And so it's the unknown that the Jewish people are afraid of here. They panic, not because they're hungry in that second, they weren't on the verge of starving, but they didn't know where the next meal was going to come from. And so God gives them a special food to support them. He gives them the manna, but there's a special condition that you couldn't bring home extra. And if you did, it would rot overnight. It would not last. And on Shabbat, you were not allowed to, to, to collect it, but they would get a double portion before the Shabbat. And we're told that if we don't work on the Shabbat, God will give us a double portion, so to speak. We'll earn even more to be able to support ourselves for the time that we were not working. So that's a message learned out from the double portion of manna. But the people still were skeptical. They went out on Shabbat to try and collect. 
and there was nothing there. So even the manna, the, even though God provided, he only provided the wonder bread from the sky one day at a time to continue to teach them this message of trust and belief. At the end of the Song of the Sea, it said, There they did trust. They did have that moment of clarity. And by the way, it's the, uh, quoted in the Haggadah, the only time Moshe is mentioned in the Haggadah. Fun factoid. But, um, but even though they believed then, once they were tested, it was still shaky. And we'll see, that's why they're going to have to do 40 years in the desert to teach the lessons, to internalize these lessons, which they weren't getting. So um, God sent quail as well to supply them with meat. So they had their food, they had their meat, and then they traveled again, and they, they ran out of water again at Rifidim, and they complained again. And here the famous incident, Moshe hits the rock, and uh, the water came out, and from then on, a well would accompany them as well. That wasn't an intended pun, but um, all their basic needs would be provided for. Uh, the final challenge in the Parsha, they are attacked by Amalek, the evil nation who had no reason to attack. And the Targum Yonatan says that they were the descendants of Esau, and this is the origin, the beginning of anti-Semitism. Hate of Jews for no reason other than that we are God's people. And um, Rashi does say that part of why this happened was because they were complaining, because they didn't trust in God. And they're going to have to put their trust again because Moshe goes up on a hill raises his hands, representing, calling out to God. And Joshua is sent to lead the army. And sure enough, they are victorious. And Hashem says to Moshe, uh, erect an altar. And this will be a remembrance that I will wipe out the memory of Amalek from under the heavens. This represents the struggle against evil and that ultimately there will be a time, it says, where... Uh, my hand will be on the throne of God, where God will actualize justice and peace in the world. And it says the war of Hashem will be on the Amalek for every generation. So the struggles of the Jewish people. And uh, next week we will have arriving at Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments. Have a good evening and Shabbat Shalom.